congratulations. We'll come to order. I want to thank each of our nominees today for their willingness to serve in these important roles and to my colleagues on this committee for joining this hearing. One of this committee's most important tasks I've discovered is to review and evaluate the president's nominees to serve in critical posts around the globe, uh, like those uh, you aim to serve in. These nominees serve as the world's window into America and to our universal values. The willingness of talented, qualified individuals to serve has never been more valuable than it is today, as American leadership is crucial in bringing the world out of the shadow of COVID-19. In advocating for American values, defending human rights, transparency, and economic freedom, and in seeking to ensure a more secure, stable, and prosperous world where democracy and freedoms are able to flourish, we are all uh, working towards that end. And with that in mind, I, I wish to again thank our nominees for appearing and your willingness uh, to continuing our nation. <clears throat> Today, this, this committee will consider the nominations of six individuals to represent the United States of America. The nominees before us are Mr. William or Doug Douglas uh, to serve as the U.S. Ambassador to the Commonwealth of the Bahamas, Ms. Melanie Higgins to be the U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Burundi, Ms. Jean Maloney to be U.S. Ambassador to the Kingdom of Eswatini, apologies, Mr. Michael McCarthy to serve as the U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Liberia, the Honorable Manisha Singh to be U.S. Representative to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development with the rank of Ambassador, and Mr. James Story to serve as U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Venezuela. Thank you all again for your willingness to serve this country. Before I turn to uh, my senator, my uh, friend and fellow Senator uh, Bob Menendez, I wish to underscore to our nominees the need for a passionate defense of American values in your future positions. If confirmed, each of you will be presented with immense challenges. I know all of you are committed patriots and I hope that you will direct that spirit towards the preservation of peace, the expansion of opportunity, and a fervent enthusiasm for your posts and for the values that you represent. I look forward to hearing how you will seek to do that very soon. I now wish to recognize my distinguished and colleague, uh, colleague and friend, Senator Menendez, for his opening comments. Well, thank you, Senator Mr. Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, a moment before I address the nominees themselves, I'm compelled to note for the record that this unfortunately is another in a series of hearings that Chairman Risch has noticed unilaterally. Uh, it's also in violation of committee practice on Rule 3D, which requires seven days notice and without a Democratic ranking member. So uh, while highly unfortunate, we have to acknowledge that the chairman has established a new set of precedents that will govern the running of the committee, regardless of who is in the majority. Uh, if, if the gentleman will yield. Surely. Um, I, I will respectfully note for the record also, it's my understanding there was significant consultation between staffs before this hearing was noticed. Consult, uh, I appreciate that, uh, Mr. Chairman. Consultation, as someone who has been on this committee since I came to Congress 15 years ago, 
consultation is not uh, the modus operandi of the committee. Uh, it is consultation that ultimately uh, derives in an agreement between the chairman and the ranking member, whoever they may be. And so I appreciate that constant reference that has now been made to consultation. Uh, if there's a different majority, I'm sure the consultation will take place the same way. Uh, I'm pleased, however, uh, to see that we are considering today the nomination for our next U.S. ambassador to Venezuela. As we heard at Tuesday's hearing uh, on Venezuela, the situation in Venezuela requires our urgent attention. Despite the international community's unwavering support for interim President Juan Guaido, the Maduro regime seeks to hold yet another fraudulent election. A massive humanitarian crisis has displaced 5.2 million Venezuelan migrants and refugees. Armed groups, including Colombian guerrillas, paramilitaries, drug traffickers, and colectivos, operate across Venezuelan territory with impunity. And the governments of Cuba, Russia, China, and Iran have gone to significant lengths to prop up the Maduro regime and undermine American influence. Against this incredibly complex landscape, I look forward to hearing from today's nominee about what steps the United States needs to take to better achieve our shared bipartisan policy objectives. I'm also pleased to see that the administration has presented a new nominee for the Bahamas amidst the ongoing reconstruction related to the devastation from Hurricane Dorian last year. The U.S. must recommit to our bilateral partnership with the Bahamas from deepening the ties between our people to strengthening our work on maritime and counter-narcotics issues to building on the economic links between our countries. I look forward to hearing how the U.S. can expand our cooperations with the Bahamas. Uh, Mr. Douglas, I understand you know the Bahamas well, uh, and we look uh, forward to your insights uh, today. In many ways, Liberia is a success story after decades of brutal civil war. Uh, President George Way uh, was inaugurated in 2018, making the country's first transfer of power between elected heads of state since 1944. However, challenges remain. Liberia's economy has still not recovered from years of conflict. The devastating Ebola outbreak from 2014 to 2015 killed 5,000 people and plunged the country into recession. Now Liberia is confronted with the prospect of a COVID-19 uh, epidemic. If confirmed, Mr. McCarthy, your voice will have significant influence due to the unique relationship between the United States and Liberia. And I hope to hear today how you plan to use that voice to speak out on the issues related to transparency, good governance, and respect for political freedoms. Ms. Higgins, the political situation in Burundi remains precarious. There have been allegations that this year's elections were marred by targeted attacks against opposition supporters, restrictions on freedom of speech and expression, hate speech, and widespread irregularities in the voting process. More than 300,000 refugees remain abroad due to fears of violence and ethnic tensions remain high. The impact that COVID-19 is having on Burundi is unclear, but Burundi's weak health system, coupled with the government's failure to impose a lockdown of any sort, is cause for alarm. Ms. Maloney, if uh, confirmed, uh, I'm sorry, Ms. Higgins, if confirmed, uh, you will serve in a country where civil and political freedoms are harshly circumscribed Press freedoms are severely restricted, where corruption and gender-based violence is rampant, and with the highest HIV-AIDS rate in the world. So I look forward to hearing from you as to how, uh, both of you actually, uh, as to how you plan to meet the serious challenges ahead. 
And finally, I also look forward uh, to hearing from Mrs. Singh about what she hopes to accomplish at the OECD, which has historically been an important tool for US diplomacy and collaboration on global economic policy. At a time of growing nationalist sentiment, we must nevertheless retain our leadership of international financial institutions and not cede them to China or Russia. We must work with our allies to create a stronger, more inclusive global economy that benefits everyone. And we must reinvigorate the instruments of economic diplomacy at home so that the Departments of State, Commerce, Treasury, and USTR work in tandem to promote US businesses and economic ideals across the globe. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Well, thank you, Senator Menendez, and I too look forward to hearing from all our nominees. Uh, we will do so momentarily. I, I will say as the powerful chairman of the Multilateral Institutions Subcommittee, I say that a bit tongue-in-cheek, but I am indeed chairman of that subcommittee. The OECD is of, of particular uh, interest. Um, congratulations again to, to all of you uh, on your nominations, these important positions. Thank you to you and to your families for the sacrifices uh, you've made and will continue to make in service to our nation. Without objection, your full written statements will be included in the record. Given the size of our panel today, I ask that you summarize your written statement in no more than five minutes. We will hear first from Mr. Douglas, the president's nominee to serve as the U.S. Ambassador to the Bahamas. Mr. Douglas has worked as a businessman and an investor for over 30, 35 years. He's led his own investment firm from 1994 until 2015. He's managed the international business of several prominent securities and business organizations. He is an avid philanthropist, both in the United States and overseas, including in the Bahamas. And he has won numerous awards for his entrepreneurial and philanthropic endeavors. Mr. Douglas, thank you for your appearance today. Please proceed. Mr. Chairman and Senator Menendez and distinguished members of the committee, I'm honored to appear before you today as the president's nominee to serve as the next U.S. ambassador to the Commonwealth of the Bahamas. I am grateful to President Trump and Secretary Pompeo for the confidence they have placed in me. If confirmed, I commit to work closely with this committee and its staff and other members of Congress to advance the national interest and deepen our already close partnership with the Bahamas. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank my family, my wife, Kristen, and children, Elizabeth and William. For over three generations, my family has maintained connections to the Bahamas, its business leaders and residents. The Bahamas is a proud, independent, sovereign nation, having gained its independence in 1973. It is therefore one of the great honors of my life to be considered for the position of ambassador to the United States of the Bahamas. The Bahamas was struck with back-to-back -back disasters of Hurricane Dorian and now the COVID-19 pandemic. Both are taking a severe toll on the Bahamian economy, as well as affecting U.S. interests and pose severe economic and social challenges to the country. The United States has proven itself a staunch and stalwart partner in assisting the Bahamas. If confirmed, I intend to continue working with the Bahamas to restore the country's economic strength and protect vital U.S. interests 
trade, investment, tourism, and importantly, security. It is in our interest that the Bahamas remains a strong and stable partner. At its nearest point, the country lies just 45 nautical miles from the coast of Florida. Our countries have worked steadfastly together to intercept narcotics and reduce human trafficking. If confirmed as ambassador, I continue to advance these efforts. I've been visiting the Bahamas for more than 50 years. Over the past decade, I've witnessed firsthand China's efforts gaining a foothold in the Bahamas. This has been a shared concern of both countries. China's presence is evident and has included road projects, port facilities, hotels, resorts across Nassau, and the use of their technology. If confirmed as ambassador, I will not only seek to increase American investment and promote our country's shared values, but also clearly communicate the risks of dealing with China, which often come with strings attached and limited employment value for Bahamian citizens. The U.S. should be their country of choice for foreign investment. I strongly believe that American companies can compete when transparent regulations, practices, and the respect for the rule of law prevail. In closing, I commit to you that I have the integrity, experience, and passion to lead our bilateral relationship with the people and the government of the Commonwealth of the Bahamas. If confirmed, I pledge to uphold the tradition and high standards of public service expected of a U.S. ambassador. Thank you, and I welcome your questions. Well, thank you, Mr. Douglas. Next, we'll hear from Ms. Melanie Higgins. Ms. Higgins is a career member of the Senior Foreign Service Class of Counselor. She served in the Office of Central African Affairs at the State Department as Director since 2018. Previously, she served as Principal Officer of the U.S. Consulate in Auckland, New Zealand, and as Deputy Chief of Mission at the U.S. Embassy in Papua New Guinea. Additionally, in a career of over 20 years, she has served in Cameroon, Australia, Bosnia, and Sarajevo, and Indonesia, and filled many positions at the State Department here in Washington. Ms. Higgins, thank you for your service, and please proceed. Chairman Young, Ranking Member Menendez, and members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to testify before you today. It is a great honor to appear as the president's nominee to be the next U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Burundi. I would like to acknowledge my family members, especially my husband, Paul, who is a diplomatic security service special agent currently serving as the regional security officer at the U.S. Embassy in Mogadishu, Somalia. He may be half a world away right now on the African continent, but I know he's here with me in spirit, and I could not ask for a more supportive spouse. I would also like to mention my parents, Alan Jackie Harris, my sister, Heather Yates, brother-in-law, Dave Yates, and nephews, Justin and Ryan. Mr. Chairman, I come from a family that believes deeply in service to the people of the United States of America. Nearly all of my relatives serve or have served in the military, law enforcement, or as teachers. In early 1998, I chose the Foreign Service and was thrilled to get my first posting to the Central African country of Cameroon, as you mentioned. I have since loved every year that I've had the privilege of representing our country as well as representing my home state of Georgia. I'm grateful for the confidence President Trump and Secretary Pompeo have placed in me for this nomination. 
If confirmed, I look forward to working closely with colleagues across the U.S. government to advance and uphold U.S. strategic interests and ideals. Mr. Chairman, the United States has important interests in the Republic of Burundi. This year, on May 20th, they had elections in Burundi that were a significant step forward, though imperfect, because they represented the first time in, since Burundi's independence that a Burundian president entered office peacefully through a constitutional transfer of power. I am inspired by the commitment of the Burundian people to peaceful elections. As we go forward, it is imperative that our bilateral dialogue and engagement respect Burundi's sovereignty and culture, but we must meet direct in discussing our concerns, especially on human rights issues where the conversations can be difficult. President Ndai Shimye's announcement of plans to fight corruption and COVID-19 and the dialogues he has launched with a broad range of political and civil society stakeholders are all positive signs, but there's more work to do to bring the Burundian people the democracy they deserve. If confirmed, I look forward to working with Burundi's new government and all Burundians to advance mutually beneficial interests on behalf of the American and Burundian people. Our interagency team in Bujumbura, together with our highly skilled and dedicated locally employed staff, are hard at work to advance America's interests. For example, the U.S. remains Burundi's key partner in addressing food insecurity and countering health crises. If confirmed, I would be honored to lead Embassy Bujumbura during a time when we will seek to redefine our bilateral relationship with Burundi. I also promise that no goal will be more important to me than protecting the welfare of U.S. citizens living and traveling in Burundi. And I will work closely with you and the members of this committee on, half, on behalf of those citizens. Thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today. I welcome any questions you may have. Thank you, Ms. Higgins. Our next nominee is Ms. Jean Maloney, who is the nominee to be U.S. Ambassador to the Kingdom of Eswatini. Ms. Maloney is a career member of the Senior Foreign Service Class of Minister Counselor. She currently serves as the Foreign Policy Advisor for U.S. Army Africa. For nearly 30 years, she has held positions overseas in Kuwait, Portugal, Brazil, Iraq, and now in Italy. She's led international security and counterterrorism efforts both here and in Washington and overseas and has extensive experience in the Bureau of African Affairs. Ms. Maloney, thank you for appearing today and please proceed. Very much. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, Distinguished Members of the Committee, it is a privilege and an honor to appear before you today as the President's nominee to serve as the U.S. Ambassador to the Kingdom of Eswatini. I appreciate the confidence the President and the Secretary of State have placed in me through this nomination. I'd also like to thank my family for their love and sacrifice in supporting my career. The United States has enjoyed good bilateral relations with Eswatini since its independence in 1968. Though a small country, Eswatini has pursued an independent foreign policy. It is currently the only country in Africa that maintains diplomatic ties with Taiwan. Eswatini has benefited from decades of political stability and limited internal conflict, but there are areas that merit attention. Fifteen years ago, the country enacted a new constitution that enshrined broader political freedoms and expanded the roles of the legislative and judicial branches. Progress has been made, but more is needed. If confirmed, I will continue to engage broadly on the need for political reform, open discourse, transparency, and inclusivity. I'll seek to expand dialogue with youth who make up more than half the country's population. A second key area concerns health. HIV AIDS has had a devastating impact on Eswatini. 
The country has the highest HIV prevalence in the world, and over half of women aged 30 to 44 are HIV positive. Eswatini has made significant progress, however, with support from PEPFAR. Tens of thousands of lives in Eswatini have been saved thanks to the generosity of the American people and strong bipartisan support for health programs. If confirmed, I will continue to focus efforts towards sustainable epidemic control while promoting self-reliance. Finally, Eswatini also faces economic uncertainties. Even before COVID-19, the country had a tenuous fiscal position and the percentage of its population living in poverty remains stubbornly high. It will be important to coordinate with organizations like the IMF and World Bank, as well as with like-minded partners to help Eswatini stimulate broad-based economic growth and opportunities for US trade and investment. If confirmed as the next US ambassador to the Kingdom of Eswatini, I will continue to strengthen our partnership with the government and the people of Eswatini in support of US goals and interests. I will promote an embassy team that reflects the diversity and the values of the United States and will prioritize the safety of our staff and US citizens. Thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today. I look forward to your question. Well, thank you, Ms. Maloney. Uh, next, we will hear from Mr. Michael McCarthy, nominee to serve as U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Liberia. Mr. McCarthy is a career member of the Senior Foreign Service Class of Minister Counselor. He served as U.S. Consul General at our consulate in Johannesburg, South Africa since 2017. Since 1990, he has additionally served overseas in Thailand, Sri Lanka, Uruguay, Eritrea, India, Germany, and South Sudan. There is Deputy Chief of Mission at the U.S. Embassy. He first got a taste for international service as a Peace Corps volunteer nearly 40 years ago. Mr. McCarthy, please proceed with your, with your statement. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Menendez, and members of the committee, it is a great honor to appear before you today as the President's nominee to serve as the next U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Liberia. I'm deeply grateful for the trust and confidence that the President and Secretary Pompeo have placed in me with this nomination. And I welcome the opportunity to speak with you today, albeit virtually from Pretoria, South Africa. If confirmed, I look forward to working closely with the members of this committee and your staff to promote and protect U.S. interests in Liberia. Mr. Chairman, with your permission, I would like to first express my deep appreciation for the love and support of my wife, Sandra Acevedo McCarthy, who is herself a Foreign Service Officer. I also want to acknowledge my deceased parents, John and Helen McCarthy, who raised seven children while serving in the Foreign Service for over 28 years. And my brother, Christopher, who served in the Foreign Service for 11 years before his untimely death. It has been my great privilege in 34 years of public service to have worked as a Foreign Service officer, as a civil servant, and as a Peace Corps volunteer in Togo, West Africa. I've served in South Sudan as Deputy Chief of Mission and in other post-conflict countries in transition, and have worked on African issues for much of the past two decades, most recently as the Consul General in Johannesburg, South Africa. Mr. Chairman, Senators, I can think of no higher honor than to represent the American people as the ambassador of the United States to the Republic of Liberia, a country with which the United States shares a special bond rooted in our deep historical ties. 
In 2017, Liberia achieved a new milestone in its post-conflict journey when it undertook the first peaceful transition of power between two elected presidents in over 70 years. This achievement followed Liberia's success in combating the Ebola epidemic. Liberia is currently contributing military personnel to the United Nations peacekeeping mission in Mali, making it symbolically an exporter of security and a contributor to regional stability. These are tremendous achievements for a country still coping with the after effects of war, and they signal the promise inherent in Liberia's democratic future. If confirmed, I will lead our embassy's highly cooperative team of nine agencies to ensure that Liberia remains on a path to self-reliance and that ordinary Liberians see the benefits of private sector growth and accountable government. I will work to attract private investment and technical assistance, and I will strive to see that Liberia remains the United States' most steadfast partner on the continent of Africa. Mr. Chairman, I thank you for this opportunity to appear before you and the other members of the committee, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Well, thank you, Mr. McCarthy. Our next nominee is the Honorable Manisha Singh, who has been nominated to represent the United States at the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, with the rank of ambassador. Ms. Singh has served as Assistant Secretary of State for Economic and Business Affairs since her unanimous confirmation in November 2017. In that position, she served as Acting Under Secretary of State for Economic Growth, Energy, and the Environment from September 2018 to June 2019. She served in government both as an aide on Capitol Hill and formerly as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureaus of International Organizations and Economic, Energy, and Business Affairs. In between those roles, she has pursued a successful legal career. Ms. Singh, thank you for your appearance before this committee, and please proceed with your testimony. Thank you. Chairman Young, Ranking Member Menendez, and distinguished members of the committee, Thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today. I am very appreciative of the time from you and your dedicated staffs. I am deeply humbled to be considered to be the next permanent representative of the United States of America to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or OECD. I want to express my gratitude to President Trump and Secretary Pompeo for the trust and confidence they have placed in me. It has been the honor of my life to serve in my present position as the Assistant Secretary of State for Economic and Business Affairs. I am incredibly blessed to have a loving family and great friends. My parents are watching from home in the Sunshine State of Florida, where I grew up. My sister, her husband, and their two daughters are cheering me on from Northern Georgia. I'm especially pleased to be considered for a role in an institution which can serve as a valuable platform to propel our global economic recovery. If confirmed, I will ensure that we fully engage with the like-minded members of the OECD to return growth and employment to pre-pandemic levels. The predecessor to the OECD was created out of American dedication to post-World War II economic recovery as part of the Marshall Plan, 
we will see an important milestone this December, the 60th anniversary of the signing of the OECD Convention. It is an ideal moment to review how we work within the OECD to create a level playing field for American workers, to solve issues preventing our companies from accessing markets, and most importantly, how to return to a sustainable working economy in light of the pandemic. As a leading voice at the OECD, we consistently share our best practices with both members and non-members. To create new jobs here at home, we need to have equal opportunities to export to foreign markets. If I'm confirmed, I commit to advocating for market-based principles which create free, stable societies and for policies which include everyone in the benefits of economic growth. Our leadership is needed now more than ever to ensure that international organizations focus on their original mission. Another important event is the upcoming selection of a new OECD Secretary General. It begins in less than a month on September 1st. As the original visionary for this organization, it is incumbent upon us to play a strong and central role in the selection of new leadership. In 1948, this committee issued a report for the administration of aid under the Marshall Plan. The report stated that provision should be made for representation of the United States in such organizations as may be established. If confirmed, I will ensure that my representation on behalf of our country reflects the historic magnitude of the public trust which is being placed in me. My initial engagement with the OECD began was when I was a staff member with this committee more than 15 years ago. It was there under the mentorship of the great statesman, Senator Richard Lugar, that I learned how important it is for diplomacy to succeed. I have remembered this sentiment as I worked for the last three years with a very talented team of civil service and foreign service officers in the Economic Bureau. If confirmed, I will be as fortunate to work with the excellent team at the U.S. mission to the OECD. And I look forward to collaborating with you and your staffs to promote American interests in this organization. Thank you again for this opportunity to appear before you, and I welcome any questions that you may have. And I thank you. Our last nominee this morning is Mr. James Story, who has been nominated to serve as the U.S. Ambassador to Venezuela. Mr. Story is a career member of the Senior Foreign Service Class of Counselor. He currently serves as the Charge d'Affaires for Venezuelan Affairs at the U.S. Embassy in Bogota, Colombia. He previously served as the U.S. Consul General in Rio de Janeiro. Brazil. He has additionally served overseas in Mexico and Mozambique. In Washington, he's spearheaded counter-narcotics, conservation, and security assistance efforts at the State Department. Mr. Story, please proceed. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, distinguished members of the committee. I'm greatly honored to appear before you today as a President's nominee to serve as United States Ambassador to the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela. 
I deeply appreciate the trust and confidence shown by the President and Secretary of State in asking me to take on this important responsibility to represent the American people. If confirmed, I look forward to working with this committee in Congress and advancing our goal of a peaceful restoration of freedom, democracy, and stability in Venezuela. Achieving this objective is key to maintaining the Western Hemisphere as the hemisphere of freedom and vital to providing for the security of the United States. The opportunity to appear before you today would not have been possible without the unconditional support of my wife, Susan, who has been my partner in diplomacy since she agreed to move our wedding date to accommodate the Department of State over 22 years ago. Um, she and our son, Mac, have served the American people with distinction, and I'm eternally grateful to, the, to them. I come before the committee after serving nearly two years as a charge d'affaires for Venezuela. I've been blessed to work with incredible teams in Caracas and Bogota, Washington, and throughout the interagency. I would like to assure the committee that your dedicated public servants working on U.S.-Venezuelan issues are staunchly committed to their responsibility of representing the United States. The United States was one of the first countries to recognize the new Venezuelan Republic in 1835. Long the regional champion for liberation and democracy, Venezuela now faces its own fight for freedom from tyranny. Our commitment to the Venezuelan people and democratic ideals upon which the Venezuelan Republic was founded is unwavering. A failed economic ideology championed by Chavez led to its inevitable political descent to totalitarianism. Totalitarianism masquerading as populism with the active interference and participation by the Castro regime in Cuba and other malign actors led to vast corruption and mismanagement that destroyed nearly every institution in the country. Before U.S. economic sanctions were introduced, Venezuela's ability to deliver basic services was already in freefall. Today, more than 5 million Venezuelans have fled their country to others in the region, the largest forced displacement in the history of Latin America. In addition, another 7 million Venezuelans face malnutrition and are in desperate need of humanitarian assistance. I want to thank Congress for its recognition of this crisis, its support through legislation, the resources, and its continued commitment to the Venezuelan people. Because of this support, the United States is the single largest donor of humanitarian assistance for the Venezuelan regional crisis, providing over $856 million in both humanitarian and development assistance to support programs inside Venezuela and in 16 neighboring countries. While nearly all of Venezuela's institutions have been destroyed, the National Assembly of Venezuela, despite regime intimidation and the illegal and unconstitutional arrest of several of its members, continues to work to restore a fully democratic and representative government. These efforts have been led by the President of the National Assembly and Interim President of Venezuela, Juan Guaido, who is recognized by nearly 60 countries as a legitimate leader of Venezuela and who embodies the hopes and aspirations of all Venezuelans against the illegitimate Maduro regime. I salute the bravery of Interim President Guaido and the members of the National Assembly, as well as journalists, NGOs, medical professionals, students, and others fighting for change. Earlier this year, the United States proposed a pathway to resolving Venezuela's political crisis, the democratic transition framework. A peaceful, political, democratic, and constitutional transition in Venezuela is in the interest of all Venezuelans, its neighbors in the United States. If confirmed, I will work tirelessly with my team to ensure the transition is successful. I look forward to once again raising the American flag above our embassy in Caracas. 
I pledge to continue to work diligently with our Venezuelan and international partners to uphold the democratic principles we hold dear in the United States and to proudly represent the American people. Mr. Chairman, uh, ranking member, members of the committee, thank you for this opportunity to appear before you. I welcome any questions you may have. Well, thank you. Uh, and once again, thank you all for your careers of service and for your willingness to be nominated for these posts. We'll now open it up for questions. Uh, I do need to announce that we have a vote coming. I'm told it's around 1130. So we will not recess this hearing. Uh, we will forge on and continue with questions. Uh, when I depart to vote, uh, we will adjourn uh, this hearing. Um, I'd like to remind my colleagues so we'll be doing five minute rounds, uh, but please keep in mind we'll be using the honor system given our virtual environment. Uh, I'll defer my questions and hand it over to my colleague, uh, the senior Democratic member on the Foreign Relations Committee, Bob Menendez, uh, to lead us off. Senator Menendez. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and um, I'm, I'm so pleased to see so many career uh, members of the Foreign Service uh, uh, up for, for these important positions. Uh, Mr. Story, uh, Section 151 of the Vedat Act, which I wrote, called on the administration to lay out a coordinated international strategy to investigate assets stolen from the Venezuelan people by the Maduro regime to freeze those assets and recover them for the future reconstruction of Venezuela. What's your understanding of the value of assets stolen from the Venezuelan people by Chavez, Maduro, and their cronies? Is it fair to say that it's in the tens of billions of dollars? Uh, Senator, I believe it could be much more than that. Uh, our assessment is hundreds of billions of dollars. All right. Uh, and can you speak to the importance of these funds to the Venezuelan people in the hope that they be recovered? Uh, certainly, Senator. You're asking a very important question. Um, we're working with the international community and others to uh, locate these funds and protect these funds. Uh, the reconstruction of Venezuela under a democratic government uh, or through a transitional government uh, will need these funds in order to, to rebuild the institutions that have been destroyed uh, after two decades of dictatorship. Let me ask you this. What additional steps? We had a hearing on Tuesday from the special uh, uh, envoy or representative uh, and uh, on Venezuela. What additional step do you think we need to, since you've been on the ground and working on this issue, both as the charge and uh, in, in, uh, in Colombia, what additional step do you think we need to take on and counter the Cuban regime's activities uh, inside of Venezuela? How do we uh, change the, um, the calculations for Putin's maneuvering in Venezuela? Uh, for Turkey's transactions in Venezuelan uh, blood gold. Uh, those are some of the countries that are helping to prop up, uh, of course, China's uh, as well, helping to prop up Maduro. How do you see the dynamics? If, if the Secretary of State, the administration, we in the Congress were to say to you, uh, help us devise a, a series of steps. What will your suggestion be? Well, Senator, I think that um, as Special Representative um, Abrams pointed out on Tuesday and, and certainly the actions we have taken, we have increased cost for bad actors, malign actors in Venezuela. We have to continue to consider other ways to do that. We're very concerned about the transport of gold bars to Iran for purchases of which we're unaware. Uh, certainly uh, free export of uh, diesel and oil to Cuba, propping up uh, the, the Castro regime. 
at the same time that the Venezuelan people need these resources um, is something that's hard to fathom. I believe that we have to consider all opportunities to go after companies. We've done that in the case of Russia um, and other entities such as Rosneft and TNK. I think we have to continue to focus in on those opportunities where we have them to continue to constrict uh, the access that Maduro and his cronies have to, um, uh, to funds that should be going to the Venezuelan people. Um, I, I know that we're working very, uh, uh, very closely with Washington on these issues and continue to look at other ways we can have an impact. I think some of the messages we should be sending, particularly to the Russians and the Chinese, is that the investments you made, if you want to ensure, I'm talking about monetary investments, if you want to ensure that they're there in the future, you shouldn't continue to support a regime that cannot guarantee them at the end of the day. A democratic regime can do that, uh, but it will look at what you've done today. Uh, one last question to you, uh, Mr. Story. Uh, in the hearing on Tuesday, uh, the administration admitted that the United States should do more to protect Venezuelan women and children. Um, I want to come back to this topic because I'm so troubled by the fact that Venezuelan women and girls are suffering high rates of sexual uh, and gender-based violence. Uh, are, are you, as you seek to expand humanitarian access in Venezuela, will you increase U.S. support for reproductive health care as well as efforts to address gender-based violence? Senator, I was I was heartened to hear in, in, in the ex explanation as well from Assistant uh, Administrator Hodges on Tuesday uh, that all of our program has a gender component to it. I think we have to continue to do that. We have to do more of that. Um, and I will commit uh, to focusing on that. I've been um, in the hospitals inside of Venezuela. I've been in the hospitals on this border on the border inside of Colombia as well. Uh, in Cucuta, for instance, 98 percent of live births are from Venezuelan women who, who have to flee into Colombia in order to receive healthcare. I think these are areas which we have to work across the humanitarian space. But certainly the issues of gender are exceedingly important uh, in Venezuela. If confirmed, I commit to you that we will maintain that focus. All right, Mr. Chairman, I, ha I have uh, several more questions, but I don't know what the time is. So I think I may be close to my five minutes. <laughs> um. Well, I uh, well, there will certainly be an opportunity for you, uh, Senator Menendez, for uh, a second round, uh, perhaps a third round. We're gonna we're gonna have some opportunities here to go back and forth. It appears so. Um, I I would like to ask a series of questions uh, for uh, Ms. Singh, who's the nominee uh, to serve as our representative at OECD, um, who also happens to have a uh, a Dick Luger. Uh, bullet point on her resume, which uh, in my estimation doesn't doesn't hurt one's background, having served with uh, uh, for Senator Luger for a, a long period of time. Um, I have had several productive conversations with your colleagues, uh, Ms. Singh, over at E, uh, especially Under Secretary Keith Kroc, in considering what America's strategy should be as uh, we think about competing with China through leaning into our strengths. Uh, your Bureau's efforts on the future of innovation has been extremely valuable in this endeavor. Uh, I know my staff has enjoyed working with the entire team there. To get us started, I introduce uh, some legislation with Senator Schumer, the Endless Frontier Act, which will leverage America's technological expertise to invest in emerging technologies of the 
of the future. A major part of that legislation is working with trusted allies and partners to broaden the pool of knowledge and seek better outcomes at a faster pace and lower cost. If confirmed, how will you seek to strengthen transnational science and tech partnerships within the OECD to increase the study and fielding of emerging technologies like AI, quantum computing, advanced biology, hypersonics, advanced manufacturing, material science, and so forth? Senator, thank you so much for that question. And I just wanted to say that um, I, I, I really um, appreciate your recognition of our joint service. I know that you are um, a mentee of Senator Luger as well. And so I really, in, in his memory, I just wanted to thank you for that recognition. Um, and Senator, when it comes to innovation and the economy of the future, this has been one of my priorities here in the Economic Bureau. Um, you may know our Bureau has held a series of innovation roundtables where we invite the technology industry in, whether it's artificial intelligence or robotics or quantum computing, uh, advancements in 5G. We've invited industry in to see how we as government can assist the private sector in providing the best platforms for them to be able to succeed. We know that the best innovations in technology have come out of this country. And I wanna make sure that it's American companies and it's American workers that are at the forefront of that. So these roundtables have been hugely successful. We've heard particularly um, from the private sector on what China has been doing um, that basically involves stealing our intellectual property that involves forcing our technology transfer. You know, they are advancing their 5G, their technology with uh, secrets that have basically been stolen from American industry. So we have made a strong effort to educate ourselves in the Bureau throughout the E-line. And Senator, at the OECD, I would commit to you that I would do that same sort of research and analysis, getting information directly from the private sector on exactly what we as policymakers need to know. Well, thank you. What do you foresee based on your experience in, in leading the business and economic partnership initiatives of the department? What, what are the greatest challenges that face uh, uh, our country uh, so that we might spur more innovation uh, in coming decades as, as it pertains to our interactions with other countries. Well, Senator, thank you for that. Uh, one of the things that we have strived to achieve is necessary, but not overly burdensome regulation. We would like to see a light touch regulation atmosphere that enables our companies and our private sector to innovate. We are also looking at regulatory burdens that have been imposed upon our companies by foreign countries. Um, you may know, Senator, that the European Union, many of its member states have decided to impose a unilateral digital services tax, which unfairly targets American companies. The OECD has been a forum where we can have a conversation with these member states so that we can solve this issue on a multilateral basis. We're trying to find a consensus-based solution to this, uh, this tax, which really does specifically target American technology companies 
hampers their innovation, hampers their ability to succeed and hire more Americans. So I would ensure that that sort of conversation proceeds at the OECD. I think that's a really important priority, uh, identifying some opportunities for regulatory harmonization, uh, light touch regulation as it uh, pertains to some of these frontier technologies. Um, do you have any reflections on, on how we might, uh, in certain circumstances, share data uh, with trusted partners? Uh, you know, uh, our data is the feedstock for machine learning and artificial intelligence, and uh, arguably the Chinese, which don't have the same privacy uh, inhibitions uh, that, that our country does. Uh, and uh, the same limitations uh, with respect to collecting data, they might outpace the West as it relates to artificial intelligence, not because they have better engineers, but because they have more data to run through their iterations. So do you see opportunities there, Ms. Singh, to cooperate with our OECD partners uh, uh, in, in pooling uh, data, uh, assuming it's, it's properly circumscribed and, and protected? Yes, Senator, absolutely. I think that we can encourage the, the free flow of data um, and free flow of data, which is, is exactly what has enabled our companies to innovate, as you have correctly observed. You know, we need that advantage of being able to share data while also finding that balance of privacy. You know, of course, we do not want the information of our consumers to be compromised by any government. In particular, we do not want the Chinese government to be able to acquire uh, privacy information, personal information about our citizens. So I think that the OECD is the perfect forum for us to find that balance about how we can encourage um, a free flow of data in a protected manner while still finding a way to ensure the privacy of our consumers. Um, we've had many conversations with our European Union uh, trading partners about this issue. And if I'm confirmed, I commit to you, I will find uh, a way to have that conversation to come up with the right balance. Thank you, Ms. Singh. Um, Senator, Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Story, one last question for you. Uh, on Tuesday, Special Representative uh, Abrams confirmed for us that Colombian guerrillas, uh, other criminal actors, uh, ELN, dissident factions of the FARC, paramilitaries, drug traffickers, colectivos, are operating with impunity across Venezuela. Uh, is, is it, and, and a lot of that seems to me in an ungoverned space. Uh, it, would it be your assessment that it, in the event of a potential transition, uh, a UN stabilization mission would be required in Venezuela, similar to what we have seen them do in past in Haiti or Liberia, for example? Well, Senator, you've asked a, a difficult, important, uh, and an important question. Uh, I've worked in ungoverned spaces uh, as INL director in Colombia. I ran INL programs, international narcotics and law enforcement for the Western Hemisphere. I served in Afghanistan. Uh, these are these are tough tough issues. In addition to the state actors we talked about earlier, you do have all of these illegal armed groups inside of the country. Um, we will, we, we, I will commit to you, if confirmed, we will work directly with the interim government as well uh, as with neighboring states, the international community to come up with the best mechanism 
Um, I don't know if it will be that mechanism or another mechanism that, uh, that a newly democratically elected government will come up with, but certainly it's an issue. Uh, it's a significant problem. It affects not only inside of the Venezuelans inside of Venezuela, but obviously uh, it, is a, um, uh, it, it is a danger to the neighbors uh, and to the ultimate security of the United States of America. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I see uh, large parts of ungoverned space uh, with uh, narco uh, uh, criminal activities. And I see it certainly a challenge for Venezuela in its future, but I see it as a challenge within the hemisphere it's, itself. And so uh, we're looking forward to uh, getting your continuing ideas as we move forward. Mr. Douglas, uh, you uh, demonstrated uh, generosity uh, towards the Bahamian people after Hurricane Dorian devastated a significant part of uh, the island. Uh, you issued a statement calling on the administration to issue up to 10,000 work visas for Bahamians displaced by the disaster. And I want to commend your compassion and uh, willingness to speak in favor of common sense uh, solutions. I issued a, a similar statement and introduced legislation that would provide TPS to Bahamian nationals. Unfortunately, that hasn't advanced. Uh, as I know that this type of principle stance has fallen out of fashion in the current era, can I have your personal commitment that if confirmed, uh, you will remain true to your beliefs and use your position as the U.S. ambassador to advocate for compassionate policies towards our Bahamian neighbors? Uh, absolutely, 100 uh, percent. What efforts would you take to increase our support, uh, our efforts in support of the Bahamians as they prepare for and respond to future major storms and hurricanes? So under the uh, Caribbean Resilience initiative that was started in 2016, uh, we have given significant aid to the Bahamas to prepare for natural disasters. And following Hurricane Dorian, uh, we provided more than $35 million in support for the Bahamian people, which included everything from transporting people to USAID. Uh and one final question to you, what, what steps do you think we need to take? You've been a long time uh, engaged in the Bahamas, observer of the Bahamas, in strengthening their anti-money laundering framework. I know that they're taking steps to try to become uh, more compliant with U.S. standards, and I would seek to try to uh, persuade them that that is the right thing for them to do and that the U.S. should be their partner of choice. Mm -hmm. uh, well. I uh, I hope we can work with them ro more robustly to achieve that because uh, at this point they are a uh, uh, a from my perspective an information a transit point in that regard so uh, they've done some things but I think there's a lot more to be done. Absolutely, absolutely, you're correct on that point. Miss um, Singh, uh, let me ask you. What do you view as the major goals the United States should be pursuing through the OECD? What do you think is the administration's major policy objectives that should be accomplished through the OECD? Senator Menendez, thank you for that question. I think the major goals we should be pursuing is cooperation with our like-minded partners at the OECD on creating a level playing field for American companies. 
the OECD is a nimble enough forum where we can have conversations with our European allies on regulatory standards, which may be hampering market access for our companies. We want a free flow of goods and commerce, particularly in light of the COVID pandemic. We wanna see uninterrupted supply chains. We don't want artificial barriers erected for our companies and for our workers to be able to compete and succeed globally. I also think longer term, we should be working within the OECD to look at the economy of the future. You know, the digital economy is not, I should say, not just the future, but it is here and now. And we want the OECD to transition into a forum where we can have conversations with our allies about the technologies that will run the future. Well, I appreciate that, but uh, as you may know, the administration has decided not to seek any funding for the OECD in fiscal year 21. So I don't know how one ultimately pursues a very valid mission, as you just stated, without any funds. What, are there reform efforts that, to your knowledge, the administration is seeking at the OECD? And uh, should we be reconsidering a zero amount of money in the midst of a global pandemic? Senator, um, we are seeking reforms at the OECD. Um, and in fact, many of the, our like-minded partners in the OECD would like to see similar reforms. We would like to see accountability. We would like to see transparency. Um, we would like to see an external evaluation of the OECD as is customary with all of our international organizations. Um, and I, you know, I think that the OECD will receive the support and, and resources that it needs from the United States government. But I would commit to you that I would work with our like-minded partners to make sure that the reforms make the OECD into a, a stronger, better organization for the American taxpayer. Yeah, I appreciate that. I would just simply say that at zero, uh, there's not much that can be done. I mean, we're for transparency, we're all for openness anywhere, any institution. But I'm trying to determine whether there are specific uh, reform efforts. One final question, if I may, for you, and then I'll yield back to the chairman. I have other questions for other candidates, but I'll yield back to the chairman. Um, as the response to our pandemic crisis continues globally for the next several months, and maybe even in extending uh, in a year or more, uh, how will you advocate uh, that governments and international actors ensure that their responses to the COVID crisis are implemented according to international standards and best practices uh, on social due diligence, human rights, and transparency in the midst of all of this. Senator, thank you. I think the OECD is an organization where the United States does share best practices, and we learn from our partners and member states on how they are handling the response to the crisis. For instance, one of the things that we in the U.S. government have been trying to do is restart international travel um, and tourism as a, a part, as an essential part of our economy. Um, at the OECD, I will plan to have conversations with our European member states on how we can get transatlantic travel and trade not just started again, but booming as it was before the pandemic. All right, uh, Chairman, I want to ask unanimous consent to enter into the record uh, a statement from myself uh, with reference to today's hearing. Without objection. So ordered. Uh, Ms. Ms. Singh, 
I'd like to pick up on on uh, Senator Menendez line of questioning. Uh, I too am interested in uh, the OECD and its effectiveness, as are you. I noted it lacks strong enforcement mechanisms and uh, compliance mechanisms, so it's going to continue unless things change to rely on the power of persuasion to affect change. Uh, I think the OECD and every single multilateral organization of which the United States of America is a member and uh, to which the United States uh, sends taxpayer dollars ought to be scrutinized. It ought to be scrutinized for its efficacy. Uh, it ought to be scrutinized uh, for uh, how it utilizes uh, taxpayer dollars, uh, opportunities for improvement, just as we would scrutinize domestic programs. So um, I expect Senator Menendez and others who, who, who may be watching these hearings uh, will uh, agree that we need to scrutinize these, these multilateral organizations. I happen to believe that the Multilateral Review Act uh, is deserving of bipartisan support. Um, and uh, uh, unfortunately, we have not received such traction. Uh, but the Multilateral Review Act, once we receive a report, uh, we, we look forward to uh, implementing whatever recommendations might be forthcoming so that we can improve uh, the OECD's operation. So should that piece of legislation uh, pass, uh, Ms. Singh, do I have your commitment to uh, to work with me and other um, members of this committee um, to assess some of the recommendations and implement those that uh, might improve the operation of OECD? Yes, Senator, absolutely. You have my personal commitment. My, I share your view that multilateral organizations should be subject to scrutiny, to accountability. Um, many of them have grown beyond their original mandate. And I think in order to make them more effective and a, a better a better use of time for all of the investment that we put in these organizations, we do need to review and we do need to scrutinize them. And that's why I mentioned the ex external evaluations that are United States government policy with respect to the OECD and every organization. So um, you have my absolute commitment that I will work closely with you and the committee to ensure proper reviews of all organizations. Thank you. Thank you. Furthermore, do you have my commitment, uh, should I remain chairman of the Multilateral Institution Subcommittee to appear at a hearing uh, uh, pertaining to this very topic of reforming multilateral institutions um, pursuant to um, uh, uh, any reports we receive, uh, like those embodied and called in and called for by Senator Rich's Multilateral Review Act. Yes, Senator, I, I commit to you that I will I will do what I can to appear. Fair enough. Fair enough. Mr. Douglas, the Bahamas risk being exploited by criminal enterprises, uh, terrorist organizations, and state actors seeking to evade uh, sanctions and financial regulations. Um, you know this is a problem because you have studied the country, you've made multiple visits to the country. How would you seek to work with the State Department and Treasury to ensure American interests are served through a more transparent financial sector in the Bahamas? 
Thank you for the question and following up on Senator Menendez's question. Uh, I do realize that they need to uh, really adopt our much stricter policies in the banking sector to account for uh, any you know money laundering, et cetera, and the irregular transfer of monies that may be in those bank accounts there. And so I would push for them to adopt our policies with greater strength. Thank you, sir. Let me pivot to China, a highly overutilized phrase, uh, but uh, one appropriate here. China's Belt and Road Initiative is coming to America's doorstep in the Caribbean Basin. While the Bahamas have not signed a cooperative agreement with China, to my knowledge, China, Chinese-controlled firms have undertaken major infrastructure projects, including the valuable container facility in Freeport. Do you have any concerns about Chinese investment uh, this close to home? Uh, absolutely. I think it is a significant concern for the United States security. Uh, Freeport is a port of first entry for the United States of America. Having the Chinese funding and half own a port of first entry into the United States that is about 60 miles from our border is a concern. So, so how do you look at such issues? Um, the fact that a port is being built, it, I suppose it's not by definition a bad thing, right? It's advantageous uh, to, uh, to the citizens um, uh, in the Bahamas. It's, it's advantageous uh, to the government is it the terms uh, and conditionality of individual infrastructure investments that are of concern to you, or is it, um, or is it just the fact that uh, these investments are being made by China and that becomes a piece of a broader narrative that the Chinese um, are uh, beneficent? good actors on the world stage when, in fact, uh, they don't share our values uh, and, um, in fact, their, uh, their form of government is antithetical uh, to uh, the, the values in which we believe. The problem is that the uh, deals that have been done, which include the largest hotel complex, the Bahamar, that was a more than $4 billion project, is wholly owned today by the Chinese. The Hilton Hotel, which is across the street from Paradise Island and near our mission in downtown Nassau, is wholly owned by the Chinese and funded by the Chinese government. They built a port in the northern sections of the Abacos in Cooperstown, which cost the Bahamians $40 million and was built with Chinese workers and is still inoperable. The port in Freeport is operable and is operating. But it's something for us to be aware that the Chinese do have probably significant interests in it. Thank you, Mr. Douglas. Uh, my time has expired, and we've been joined by Senator Kane, uh, uh, who, um, uh, if he is ready, he just uh, we, we the nature of these jobs is we we move from meeting to meeting. So, Mr. 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 Chair, can you hear me? Um, I can indeed. I'll, I'll defer to you, uh, Senator.
thank you, Senator yeah. Young and Senator Menendez, and thanks to all the witnesses. I've actually been uh, viewing and hearing you for the last uh, about 40 minutes. It's just that I was not able to be seen or heard by you, which is to your benefit. It, it's all a plus that I can see, hear you, and I can assure you it's a plus for you that you can't see and hear me. So anyway, um, and the questions that both Senator Young and Menendez have asked have been fairly thorough. Uh, Mr. Story, it's good to see you again. I think we were together in the, in the spring of 2019, um, and um, I just really want to follow up on one of the many tough issues dealing with Venezuela, and that is the the challenges that Venezuela posed to Colombia. So just to state the reason that I'm asking it this way, you know, I think Venezuela is almost a text case for the world. If you if you align with authoritarian nations like Russia, China, Iran, Cuba, um, here's what your life's going to be like. If you if you allow an authoritarian to run things into the ground and just use the revenues of uh, of a frankly fairly wealthy nation to pad the pockets of the cronies that will then stick by you and everybody else suffers, then look what you're going to get and look who is aligned with Venezuela. You're going to get the same thing in Iran, the same thing in Russia, the same thing in China. Sadly, Turkey is also propping up Venezuela as is Cuba. On the other hand, right next door, you have a perfect counterexample. If you try to go down the path of democracy, solving tough internal issues like a longstanding civil war, if you try to invest more in parts of the country that had been disinvested in for decades, if you align with the democracies of the world like the United States in that effort, the path for your citizens is also going to dramatically change for the better. I, we have made huge investments in Colombia, um, administrations of both parties supported by Congresses under the control of both parties, and we've achieved so very, very much. And I almost think that just a spotlight on Colombia and a spotlight on Venezuela is about all you need to know in order to decide which path you would rather pursue. However, that means that the investments that we and other democracies have made in Colombia need to be continued. And there are certainly vulnerabilities to Colombia's progress posed by the massive migration of folks from Venezuela and other challenges, including Venezuela allowing you know, remnants of Colombian rebel groups to seek safe haven there. So talk to me a little bit about sort of your role in Venezuela, but also your understanding of this really important relationship between these two neighbors that are important in and of themselves, but also paint such an, a clear distinction about life under authoritarianism and life under democracies for the rest of the world. Well, well, Senator, thank you very much for that question. I, I'll try to be brief. I think this is one that we could spend a, a week uh, talking about and not even scratch the surface. And my job running the narcotics and law enforcement office here from 2010 to 13 was precisely um, uh, to help Colombia uh, force the FARC into negotiations so they could get past over 50 years of civil war. The investment by the American people in Colombia and how that investment has also uh, allowed us to work with the Colombians in Central America, Mexico, and other countries of South America. Extraordinary um, opportunity, and 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 um, I, I salute the Colombian people uh, for their uh, for their ability. Uh, they're working with us, and now they're facing this difficult situation uh, from Venezuela. But uh, now home here in Colombia, over two million 
uh, immigrants uh, from Venezuela. I, I call them immigrants. I think it's a there's a better term for that. Uh, they've been forcefully displaced uh, from Venezuela. Uh, a very difficult environment. Right when Colombia is attempting to get past, uh, you know, over five decades of, of internal strife, they're now met with having to figure out how to clothe and feed and provide schooling and hospitals, uh, medical care uh, for uh, large numbers of people. Uh, and, and add on to that, that without opportunities, these become rich breeding grounds for, for uh, illegal armed groups as well. So I think Colombia has done an extraordinary job very difficult circumstances. Uh, I applaud Congress and the U.S. government for all we've done to support Colombia and other countries in the region dealing with the situation from uh, from Venezuela. And I can tell you um, the biggest impact we can have and the biggest um, uh, help we could give to Colombia, the region, and to the United States is to restore democracy in Venezuela. Mr. Story, thanks for that answer. I look forward to working with you on that matter together with my colleagues in both parties. And Mr. Chair, I'm going to yield it back to you because I haven't voted yet. I've also not voted and uh, uh, we will soon be adjourning uh, this hearing. I'll, I want to give Senator Menendez an opportunity to ask uh, a, another question and uh, I'll ask one pointed question uh, to, to wrap things up, but um, we'll each have to head down to vote very soon. Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. So uh, when you say adjourn, you're going to adjourn the hearing, uh, uh, not not recess it, but adjourn it. I will adjourn and recess. We'll do the same at, 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 at the same time. Yes. So uh, it's, so you it's come back to what I'm saying. No, is the hearing going to continue? No, no, the hearing's not going to continue. No, the, the hearing will not continue. I regret I just, the parliamentary stuff. I'm, I'm still, you know, yeah. No, that's okay. I just yeah. want uh, I just want, want a clarification. Yes, sir. For our time frame. Yeah. So I'm going to evidently have some questions for the record. I would just say to some of the nominees who I've not been able, won't be able to get to, is not for lack of affection for what you're the post that you're going to, but it is uh, because of time. Uh, so, uh, but I do want to go to Mr. McCarthy for a moment. Uh, President uh, Weah's election marked the first transfer of power. He ran on an anti-corruption, inclusive economic growth campaign, but there's a lot of dissatisfaction with them, incre increasing scrutiny to high-profile scandals. What's your assessment of the government's willingness and capacity to address corruption? And what would you do if confirmed to press the government to adequately address uh, the corruption issue? Uh, Senator Menendez, thank you for that question. Uh, yes, it's a very important issue. and. Uh, I would approach that from a three-pronged approach. Number one, we, we have embedded uh, U.S. personnel experts, administrative uh, experts in various ministries throughout the government of Liberia who are teaching their counterparts the proper administration of public funds. At the same time, I, if, if confirmed, I would uh, publicly recognize uh, governmental and non-governmental organizations that are focused on uh, pushing for anti-corruption. So this is the uh, Anti-Corruption Commission of Liberia and the Auditor General of Liberia. And uh, publicly support those organizations whenever feasible. Uh, but third and most importantly, I would highlight to the president 
and to the government uh, how essential it is to uh, change the perception of corruption in Liberia, not just for private investment, but for also for things like the uh, the Millennium Challenge uh, Corporation. If they're interested in additional compacts, they're just wrapping up the first MCC compact, $257 million in Liberia, that is doing the kinds of things that the president uh, and the people have been uh, asking for uh, additional electricity, additional uh, fresh water, and new roads. Uh, however, to get a new compact with the MCC, they will have to pass the MCC scorecard, which, as I'm sure you're aware, they have not passed for the past two years. So I would highlight uh, the absolute uh, essential importance of taking on corruption as a problem and uh, resolving the problem and the perception of the problem if they wish to move forward. Thank you, sir. All right. I, I'm going to submit for the record some additional questions uh, to you on uh, uh, three uh, press issues there. Uh, Ms. Higgins, I have questions about the human rights abuses investigation that the UN uh, Human Rights uh, Council approved and what has been done in that regard and your view on sanctions. Uh, in this regard, I'd like to hear uh, some substantive responses from you on those. And Ms. Maloney, I, I want to um, talk uh, to you about the ban on political parties. Has it been lifted? Uh, and what impact does the ban have on regards to people exercising political rights uh, as well as women's rights in uh, Eswatani? So I'll submit those for the record. If you'd give me a substantive response, I, I'd appreciate it. No, no, I yield back to you. Thank you, Senator Menendez. Uh, Ms. Higgins? Ms. Higgins is still with us. Ms. Higgins? Yeah. Okay, I, I just have uh, one line of questioning uh, that will be fairly brief, and, and then we will be uh, adjourning this hearing. Uh, I, too, will be submitting some questions for the record. Ms. Higgins, following your the recent elections in Burundi, that resulted in a new president, uh, Everiste Indiyishme, and the death of former President Pierre Nukurunziza. You and the State Department have made a case for taking a hard look at rebooting the U.S.-Burundi relationship. Doesn't the country's poor showing on the trafficking and persons reporting, for instance, preclude any real partnership in the near term? How do you envision uh, this working? Uh, thank you very much, Chairman Young. Um, the new president came in um, on a relatively peaceful election, election start contract last election in 2015. He's also the first time there's been a peaceful transfer of power in this country since its independence. These are positive signs, but there is much that remains to be done. He, the new president has had several important uh, steps, such as talking about his willingness to fight corruption and fight COVID. We want to use those opportunities where we can find common ground to see how we can work together. You're absolutely right, Chairman Young, that the trafficking in persons uh, tier three designations under the Trafficking Victims Protection Act precludes much of our assistance, such as training of their military. Nonetheless, uh, there is a significant amount of USAID assistance that goes towards important programs, such as our humanitarian assistance for refugees and internally displaced people, as well as health 
which is very important, not just in this COVID era, but most recently to prepare for Ebola, since there was a two-year Ebola epidemic just across the border. And also, as we look forward on fighting things like malaria, since Burundi has the highest malaria rates in the entire world. I do believe those kinds of assistance can continue. And yet I do look forward, if confirmed, to working with Burundi to raise issues of human rights and especially trafficking in persons so they can do better on that very important issue. Thank you for being responsive uh, to that line of inquiry. Again, I will have some additional questions that I'll submit to uh, some of our uh, nominees for uh, what I hope is a, a fulsome response. Uh, I wanna thank you again for appearing before this committee for your desire to serve our nation in these important positions. For the information of members, uh, the record will remain open until the close of business tomorrow, Friday, August 7th, including for members to submit questions for the record. Uh, thanks again to each of you. Congrats to you and your family. This hearing is now adjourned.